travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. The subject of many novels and movies, Central Asia sits at the crossroads of legendary rivalries and is crossed by the fabled Silk Road. The region is massive, covering more than 4 million square kilometers and includes five countries that were formerly part of the Soviet Union, including Kyrgyzstan, the focus of this episode. Both Kyrgyzstan and its neighboring countries have diverse cultures and rich histories, but are largely unknown to Western travelers. On this episode, we'll chat with travel writer and photographer Stephen Leoy about his life in the country, where he lives, some insider tips, what keeps him there, and get the inside scoop on one of the world's most remote travel locations. From Bangkok, Thailand, I'm Scott Coates, and with me, as always, is... Trevor Ranges in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Excited to talk about Kyrgyzstan because, uh, you know, we've been trying to broaden our Asia coverage and uh, this is uh, about as far from Phnom Penh and Bangkok as you can get. In Asia, pretty much. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't know much about it. I, I, I've i read up on the five stands a bit because my dad and I were looking at doing a Central Asia trip back in 2019. We ended up going to uh, Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan instead. But uh, we have a former colleague, Maeve, who actually rented a motorbike there a couple of years ago or a year and a half, two years ago with some friends and drove around and said it was incredible and really piqued my interest. Yeah, you know, when I was in high school, my parents, because my dad used to be an Ironman triathlete, friends with other athletes, and we had a runner from Kyrgyzstan stay with us. And uh, I just looked her up on the internet. Her name's Irina Bogacheva. And she has more sub, like for marathon time, she's one of the best marathon runners in history. So she's mm-hmm. something of a legend. So I remember meeting her as a child. And she was this very, very tall, slender blonde woman. And I'm like, where in the world is Kyrgyzstan? And I looked it up in my little world atlas. And, uh, you know, I remember learning about the country from then over the years, you know, it just doesn't come up that often in conversation. It does not come up for us Westerners that much. And, you know, we, we, we scanned the Wikipedia, so we'll give you a wee bit of background if you don't know anything about it. Kyrgyzstan is actually officially the Kurds Republic. It's landlocked in Central Asia, bordered by Kazakhstan to the north, Uzbekistan to the west, Tajikistan to kind of the south and west, China to the east. The largest city is Bishkek, which has about a million people. And they have about 6 million people overall, about 80% are Islamic, but there's some minorities of Uzbeks and Russians. Apparently, there's even some Germans there. And uh, there's about 80 different ethnic groups. And the Soviets got out, I think, like 89, 90. And there was even like a Jewish community that at one time made up 10% of the country's capital, which is a, a really kind of quirky fact. Yeah, you know, I think it's got an interesting history, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. But like, you know, the first thing I always do is go to Google Maps and check out a place from from Google Earth, especially. And uh, one fact I learned was that Kyrgyzstan is farther from the sea or the ocean than any other individual country. 
and that none of its rivers flow into the sea either. So it's kind of the world's most landlocked country. At the same time, it's dominated by this mountain range that covers 80% of the country, and that lends itself to Kyrgyzstan's nickname, the Switzerland of Central Asia. Uh, one other fact I dug up that was interesting was that a 2019 Forest Landscape Integrity Index ranked Kyrgyzstan 13th out of 172 countries, meaning that it has the 13th most pristine natural forest in the world, which was pretty impressive after I'd learned that, you know, they do a lot of gold, coal, and uranium mining for, for their economic necessity. Um, but that still must be minor compared to like just this, this forested mountain range that, that dominates the country. And although it's really isolated and, and, you know, surrounded on some sides by really high mountainous terrain, it's been at the crossroad of many great civilizations. Of course, Silk Road goes through there and other commercial routes that has got Turkic influences. Carriage culture bears elements of Iranic, Mongolia, and Russian cultures. They're part of the Uyghur Kaganate in uh, 84 AD, and they dominated that region and territory for about 200 years until it fell to the Mongols in the 13th century. It eventually became part of the Russian Empire in 1876 and remained part of the USSR until, I believe, 1991. And I think it's Christmas Day, uh, December 25th of 2021 coming up, which will be the 30th anniversary of like true independence. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, it was interesting to find out that it, it had been a part of the Russian Empire since the 19th century. But then, you know, that whole Silk Road thing, uh, you know, clashing with these ancient kingdoms in, in the 9th and 10th century. Um, I'm not that familiar with the history of that region. Um, so I'm looking forward to maybe learning a little bit about it from our guest today. Originally from Louisiana in the good old U.S. of A, travel photographer and writer Stephen Leoy set off in 2008 to try living in China, but after a year and a half got wanderlust and headed down more remote paths. This journey took him to Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan, where he's been photographing, creating content, and sharing that part of the world ever since. He joins us online from Bishkek. Thanks for connecting with us, Stephen. Thank you so much, you guys, for reaching out to me. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get into the nitty gritty, we always got to go back to the before. What did this guy in Louisiana do before he ended up in the part of the world you're in now? Uh, really nothing, man. I was in college. I was going to eventually go to law school. Uh, I decided to take one year off to go live in China for a minute and just kind of never went back. It, you know, I, I did the year in China. I was a TEFL teacher. I did another six months after that and then decided to break my contract and travel for six months before I went back. And at some point in that six months, I was on a beach in Indonesia, in Sulawesi, talking to a couple of Dutch people. And, and the conversation just turned to this point of me realizing that I would never be happy if I went back and tried to fit back into this like very normal nine to five office lifestyle. And so kept traveling from there and eventually found a financial path and then eventually found a place that I wanted to settle down here. And uh, so, I mean, in the end, have actually resumed a somewhat normal life here, uh, but it was a pretty twisting path to get here. Sulawesi is a very remote kind of out of the way and exotic place to begin with. And like when you're saying, yeah, you know, I don't want to go back. I was like, yeah, stay in Sulawesi. But it's a long ways from Sulawesi to, to Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. How did that happen? So obviously when you're traveling, you can't do it forever unless you find a way to make some cash, right? And so I obviously started writing and photography. And it got to a point to where it just wasn't enough to be searching out the next little listicle, you know, the next thing that you could publish for some website that was going to pay you 30 bucks or 40 bucks or whatever. 
And so I decided that I really wanted to, one, go to, I mean, air quotes, but more interesting places. But what I really mean by that is places that less people are spending time in. And so it happened that I went back to visit friends in China, in Hong Kong, and then across the border in China one time. And at that point, I had already left China via every avenue to the east and southeast, you know, I mean, not everyone, but, but most of the flights you could take to Southeast Asia from Shenzhen, I had taken already. And so I started looking at a map thinking, oh, I wonder what's out west out there, you know, so I spent, a, I don't know, a couple of weeks in Xinjiang traveling. And then at that point decided, well, you can get a visa for Kazakhstan in uh, Urumqi. So I'll go check out Kazakhstan and see what it's like, you know, and then in Almaty, the uh, not the capital, but the largest city of Kazakhstan. I ended up getting an Uzbek visa and kept going from there. And that was it for that trip. But it was just enough of a taste that I was like, this region is amazing. And it's so much different from all the places that I've been spending time so far. Did that short trip, flew back, uh, I don't know, six months or a year later, and did a longer trip through all five of the stands. And then at the end of it, I mean, sort of it was the same with Bishkek. I decided, hey, I really, if I'm going to keep traveling this region, need to learn some Russian because I had travelers Russian, like, you know, 30 words, 40 words. So I settled down in Bishkek for what was going to be a month or so and just liked it, loved it. I mean, I had been traveling for a while at that point, was ready to settle down a little bit, I think, and just happened to, to roll into this place that was perfect for me. And so it ended up staying over the years. Well, that's an awesome origin story, so to speak. And I will plead ignorance. I mean, I've read about the region, but I can't imagine what is Bishkek, the capital like? Ah, it's laid back, which is really a huge part of the draw for me. Like in, in terms of tourism, the capital city doesn't really have so much, you know, because people are mostly not coming to Kyrgyzstan for the city. So there's a handful of museums. There's a really good bar and restaurant scene. I mean, there's a, a nightlife scene as well. It's small and manageable. And I don't know, it's just the, the relaxed thing that I want after having, for example, lived in China for uh, almost two years in a city of 11 or 12 million people. Like, that has its benefits, but it's not really my thing, you know? And so I would much rather live somewhere like Bishkek, where you can drive from here to the nearest national park. It's like a 45-minute drive and get into true wilderness, right? Not like manicured hiking trails in a park, but actual open wilderness. Uh, and that's what I want, you know? That's what I do for fun. That's what I do in terms of photography in my free time is try to go to places like that. And so living in Bishkek, just it's so accessible and it's unbelievable how easy it is and even near to the city, there's the mountains are so close that you could spend six months or a year trying to explore every single valley and every single possible hike and still never finish it, much less the rest of the country. Yeah, I was having a look at the Google Maps before our talk here. And of course, on our show notes, we'll share a Google Map that hopefully, Stephen, you can help us put some pins on to share with our listeners. But yeah, it certainly looks very green and, and very wild. And uh, I could see why, you know, especially if you love the outdoors, why you'd want to settle down there. So did just your passion for exploring and your toe in the water in the writing industry turn into like becoming an authority and writing Lonely Planet books about the region? How did that uh, transition occur? Yeah, well, I should say, since you mentioned that, that I'm not here on behalf of Lonely Planet, but I am a Lonely Planet writer. Yeah, I mean, again, I was writing already, right? Just these, these listicles from Southeast Asia and China for popular sites, but not like high level sites, maybe we'll say. And so when I got here, it was just a region that nobody was really publishing about at that time. You know, I mean, it was like 2012, I think the first time that I came to Kyrgyzstan. So it would have been 2011, the first time I was in Central Asia. There were no bloggers that were writing about Central Asia. There were no major outlets that were writing about Central Asia. And so the moment that you sent a pitch to an editor, they were like, where? Okay, this sounds cool, but let me figure out where that is first, you know? 
And so it was just in that sense, in the English language media, it was almost uncharted territory uh, and people loved it. People snapped it up, right? Because it's a beautiful place. The culture is super interesting. And it was just almost a, a terra incognita as far as travel media was concerned. Trevor and I spoke a bit about the country in the intro, but you're the expert. Can you give us the real Coles Notes overview about the country? Like, what is it? I mean, a former Soviet Republic, it's vast, it has funky neighbors. Can you just give us a Coles Note version of what the country is for our listeners? In terms of tourism, it's really about the nature. Uh, again, there's so much hiking. It's it's the culture before Soviet times was a nomadic culture in Soviet times, mostly people were settled by collectivization. And so now they've started to return to some of these traditions, but you would call it truly a semi nomadic culture now where people live mostly in the mountains, not people overall, right. But the people who live this way live in the mountains in the summer with their livestock. And then they come back down to the village for winter and house the livestock in um, Kashar's like barns, right. Ranches. And so the real joy is exploring where those two things intersect. You can be up in the mountains and you see no tourist for, you know, three or four days sometimes, unless you're in a popular area. But then you come down to this valley and there's like 200 horses running over here and 100 or 200 sheep over here and like three shepherd dudes just hanging out watching them. And so it's, it's really interesting to see this very traditional lifestyle but in the context of the modern world where these dudes like they might speak a couple words of English, right? Or a couple words of German, actually, because some of them grew up in the Soviet Union where German was the foreign language that was taught in schools. And so it's just this fascinating mix of these two things that even having been here for years now, man, I still haven't gotten enough of it. You know, it's still a delight every time. And as with many sort of uh, especially semi-nomadic cultures, there's a really strong tradition of hospitality. And so you get to these same guys and in tourist areas, you don't see it quite as much anymore. Uh, but in, in really remote areas, you're going to be invited in for tea. For There's a, a popular drink that is fermented horse milk, uh, kumuz it's called. Almost certainly you're going to get an invite the moment that you cross paths with somebody like this. Uh, and so it's just this, it's, I don't know, it feels like a throwback to an earlier age of travel, you know, especially having spent so much time in like Southeast Asia where you don't see any of this anymore most of the time. Yeah, you know, again, like looking at the map and, and seeing Google Earth and stuff, it looks pretty spectacular. But uh, the most popular destination in this country seems to be the, the lake. Is it, How do you pronounce that? Is it cool? Is it cool? Is it cool? And I thought, like, is it cool all year round? Like, is that like a summer destination? Or like, is it ice skating in the winter? What's that? Because uh, that's the big attraction, though, right? Uh, that is the most popular tourist attraction, but by and large, it's not foreign tourist as much. Well, it's not Western tourist as much as like Russians and Kazakhs and Uzbeks who come. Um, interestingly, the name, in fact, means warm lake because it never freezes. Uh, and so it is a summer destination and a beast destination. On the northern shore of the lake, you have more of like the, I mean, call it an Ibiza scene, right? Like the clubs and, and discos and party scene, whatever. Uh, whereas on the Southern shore, it's much more wild. It's much more, you stay at a guest house and you go to an empty beach with no infrastructure, uh, and you know, just have a good time. Foreign tourists typically in my experience spend like a day, maybe two at the beach and then head somewhere else. But yeah, amongst, uh, Russians and Kazakhs, especially, and, and more recently Uzbeks as well come and spend their whole trip on the beach and their whole trip in Cholpanata. Uh, and that's the reason they've come to Kyrgyzstan, which is fascinating to me to see but only because it's so different from the sort of tourism that I'm interested in. Now, I imagine in that part of the world, you're getting some of the regional stands coming there for holiday or Russians. But thinking about Western travelers, what is typically drawing a Westerner to Kyrgyzstan? Well, typically it's either trekking or horse trekking. There are a couple of major destinations. One of them is Songkol, which is right above 3,000 meters. Um, it's, the, you know, just this really peace, tranquil, peaceful, tranquil place. 
surrounded by mountains on all sides. It's the weather can go from beautiful sunny day to raining to snowing and back to sun in the middle of summer in one day. It's just a really amazing spot. It's it's somewhere that I try to go every year if I can. There's a hiking trail that goes to a lake called Alicol. That's I think a little bit less than 3,000 the lake itself, but it's a couple kilometers long lake just hemmed in by sharp peaks on every side. There's a big glacier on the I guess the eastern end that feeds it. Uh, and and from the pass that you go to to get up to the lake or to leave the lake, depending on which side you're coming, uh, you can see all of these peaks. There's like three or four peaks above 5,000 meters. There's a bunch more that are a little bit less than that. And it's just the, this incredible panorama that opens up before you. And it's a two-day hike. You know, It's a two or three-day hike. So you don't need to plan very much. You don't need to carry very much. You just sit out on a well-beaten path and, and eventually you get to these incredible things. So there's that, like it's it's an easy place if you're independent to arrange just as much trekking as you could possibly want to do. And if you're really independent or you're willing to hire a guide and pay for the support, man, you can get to places where like even Kyrgyz people have never heard of them. Sounds like a photographer's dream for one. And uh, again, we hope we'll share some of the photos to put on our show notes so our guests can have a look sure. at, at some of your work, which would be great. But I think, you know, you were mentioned exploring by horse as well. And, you know, from what I read about like the infrastructure, it seems like, you know, getting around by horse is very traditional and common type thing and then it mentioned that they people stay in yurts as well so like could you do the yurt camping when you're doing the horse trekking and then just like regular camp or do they have cabins when you're hiking yeah so typically if you're horse trekking you're going to arrange yurts as well uh just as more common i think you don't necessarily have to but in the regions like songkol for example where it's most popular that's typically what people do just because they also want to experience this lifestyle and frankly it's a little bit more comfortable right you have somebody else cooking a nice meal for you you have a dry place to sleep most of the yurts any of the tourist yurts especially have heaters inside so you stay warm at night even in the middle of uh, cold winter how many people in a yurt man it depends on the size of the yurt uh typically for tourists if you're at a say tourist to yard camp, it's pretty easy to get just like you and your group, whether that's two people or a family or whatever. In a really authentic yurt stay experience, the whole family and all of their guests sleep in one yurt. So that can be, I mean, 15, 20 people if you really have to. I've got some really basic kind of travel questions just to make sure we have a better understanding of the country. What are the people like? What's the food like? And how are you getting around as a, as a traveler? Are you flying? Are you taking a bus? A car? I'm trying to wrap my head around that. All right. So there's two, I think now three, flight routes in the country, like popular flight routes. And there is one train journey you can take. Other than that, it's all by either share taxi, share minibus, or a private car. Share taxi is exactly what it sounds like. You show up to the bus station. There's a dude with his car looking for people. It's a lot more comfortable than the minibuses. It's a tiny, tiny bit more expensive than the minibuses. So unless you're really, really on a bare bones budget, probably you're taking share taxis most of the way. Can I interrupt you real quick, Stephen? Because we haven't talked about the prices at all. Are we talking relatively inexpensive costs for traveling in, in Kyrgyzstan? The only real cost that can get expensive, if you want to keep things cheap, the only thing that really can get expensive is transportation. Because, of course, there is public transportation to places where people live. But if you want to get to a remote mountain trailhead, there's no public transportation that goes there. So then you're looking at hiring a private car. I mean, offhand, I think if you take the train from Bishkek to Issaquul, it's like a dollar. Uh, if you take the same route on a minibus, it's probably two or two fifty US. Uh, a share taxi probably would be three or four dollars US. It's very cheap. Food as well, like at a small cafe, like cafeteria, still away. 
uh, you can get a mill for a buck or two, you know, if you really want to. It will be pretty basic. It will not be super flavorful, but it will be food. No, no horse milk. Yeah, what? So it's hard to find that in the city sometimes, actually. Uh, I just bought some for two liters of horse milk a couple, like a month ago. I paid 400 som, which is about five bucks. What are the people like and what's the food like? People mostly are friendly. Level of English outside of either this capital or the tourism sector can be quite low. As I sort of referenced earlier, older people actually are more likely to speak a little bit of German than a little bit of English because during the Soviet period, that was the foreign language that primarily was taught. It's worth really learning at least basic traveler's Russian before you come because it will make your experience so much easier. And also people really are quite outgoing uh, with foreigners especially. And so it really will deepen your cultural experience. Even if it's only sharing those 20 words or 30 words, it still allows you to communicate at least that little bit, right? Uh, so unless you're with a tour or a guide or something, it's something that I recommend to pretty much anybody who wants to come. Actually, if you happen to already speak Turkish, the Kyrgyz language and Turkish are, I don't know, 80% similar or something, 70% similar. And so like we have Turkish friends uh, that come and speak to people in Turkish. And it's not the same, right? But it's enough to get by, which I always find really interesting. Presumably most world travelers are going to speak Russian before they're going to speak Turkish. Uh, so I don't know how useful that is to most people, but it's interesting, certainly. Yeah, people are really outgoing. People are friendly occasionally have somebody that really is confused why a Westerner has rocked up to this remote village in the middle of the mountains. Uh, but it's never really hostile, right? It's just sort of like standoffish a little bit. And, and they have just, uh, there's hotels in these small towns or guest houses, or what's the lodging like when you're off the beaten path a little bit? Outside of the couple of biggest cities, it's almost always going to be a guest house. More often now, you can find little yurt, especially as a cool, you can find little tourist yurt camps that pop up uh, a couple of places. And so this sort of combines these things, but it's not really an authentic yurt experience, right? It's a tourist novelty. If you're going anywhere really out there, you're sleeping in somebody's home or you're sleeping in somebody's yurt or in your own tent. So yeah, the guest house thing is pretty well developed. There's a community-based tourism organization, a couple in the country, but one called CBT that has worked with partners all across the country in, I mean, fairly remote places often to sort of enable people there to be part of the tourism sector and for tourists to have a place to be able to look for when they get to a new city. And it works fairly well, as long as you know, again, that little bit of Russian to just ask your way around to where you're supposed to be going. Okay. And I realize this is a massive country and, and you've been there for years and you said, you know, you could hike for years and still not even scratch the surface really. But how long does somebody need, you know, for a trip? If they're going to go, is, is two weeks going to give you enough of a taste or do you need three weeks or four? And then sort of what's, what's that must do trip look like? You know, I think most tourists spend around two weeks. If you're a first time visitor, you're really just hitting the highlights of like Narin and Issaquil Oblast, two weeks will do. That will give you time to go to Songkol, time to spend a little bit of time in Issaquil and then get to Karakol, do some hiking around there and maybe check out a couple of slightly more remote villages. If you're on public transport, obviously you're going to be able to do less in that amount of time because transportation really just is one of the difficulties. If you're either hiring a rental car or hiring a, a guide and driver, you can do a lot more. Could you maybe just tell us a bit more about some of those destinations? You've touched on a couple of them, but what, what, what do you do at the other ones? Uh, yeah, so Songkol I mentioned is the big lake. From there, you can go trekking or horse trekking in all four of the cardinal directions, basically, uh, to get to somewhere else interesting. North of there, Jumgal is really underexplored, which I think is a shame because there's a lot of beautiful other smaller lakes in the mountains around there. Nearby there is a city called Kochkor that's really, I mean, the, the name means like uh, a little sheep, basically. Uh, it's a big agricultural area. It's a big uh, animal husbandry area. There's more lakes in the mountains. There's trekking trails you can take from there that you can go for six or seven days and get to Issaquil. Really, my favorite area 
and I'm biased because I've spent a lot more time there because I also have done some work there in the past. But Caracol is this lovely little town. It it has a long history in terms of even like the, the Kaganates and stuff that were here. But modern Caracol is a little Russian village, basically, uh, grown up into then a modern Kyrgyz city. And so you have these like, if you have a, a mental image of these like iconic blue Russian wooden houses with the white trim around the windows, the old town, the oldest section of town is, is chock full of these and they're beautiful. And some of them are falling apart. And it's a little bit sad, but also it's quite photogenic, right? It, it really adds an air to the town. There's a wooden church that's made all of wood. There's a wooden mosque that's all constructed from wood. All of, both of these things are, are quite old and historic for the town. And then from there, you can hike, it's sort of like Bishkek. You're in 15, 20 minutes, you can get into the first foothills. In a couple of hours, you can properly get into the mountains. One of my favorite treks near there is a seven-day trek that hits it's 90 or 100 kilometers or something. Uh, it crosses one or two passes every day. It goes through all these little lakes. It goes past Alakol Lake. Like It's really the highlights of the whole Aksu region around Karakol. Uh, and it takes nothing to organize, right? You need to buy some food, you need to buy a map to make sure you're going the right way, and then you just start walking, assuming you have basic mountain skills. Really? So you can head out self-supported with your own tent, your yeah. own food, no guide, and you'll be all right? That's what most people do in that region, especially. Uh, for Alakol, this, this lake that I mentioned before, you can take a guide, and people do if they're really not comfortable in mountains at all or hiking at all. But you really don't need it. You you walk up one valley, you turn up to the pass to the lake, you walk past the lake over another pass, and you walk down the other side. You know, I mean, it couldn't be easier. A lot of the conversation has been about like the natural beauty. One of the things I read was that there's over 80 different ethnic groups. And I was wondering if as you travel to different regions, can you experience like some different cultures or have those cultures been like russified or, or, or changed over time? And the other one is, it, are there any sort of like archaeological ruins of any sort that are interesting? Yeah, so the first one, Caracol, again, is the place to do it. Uh, not that there's necessarily more ethnic groups in Caracol, but it's just easier somehow to interact with these cultures here. They've been there for a lot longer. They've they've sort of, they get along really well. Like they've never had problems in modern times anyway. And also the local DMO in Caracol, Destination Caracol, has worked a lot with USAID to sort of help prepare experiences that allow travelers to actually experience these cultures and interact with them. So there's one uh, community called the Dungans, which is a Chinese, like Han Chinese offshoot of Muslim Chinese that came to Kyrgyzstan in oh, the 1800s, I think. And so their language is is similar to Hokkien or something like this, right? One of the Chinese dialects. Hmm. Uh, it's not Hokkien, I guess, because it's too far east, but one of the Chinese dialects in like Gansu region. Their language is essentially that, but then morphed over time. They The food is, is kind of Central Asian and kind of Chinese and absolutely delicious. There's Uyghur, obviously, which is the major... Um, cultural group sort of along the border now between Central Asia and China. And they have these experiences as well. You can go to a Uyghur home and sit and chat with them and learn about their culture and their life and taste nine or 10 dishes of the food in this like massive feast that they put out before you. It's all, it's often food related in that region, especially because they have quite good food, you know, but it allows you to really sort of access these cultures and, and, and interact directly with somebody that's a representative of that group and hear their history and their story from their own mouth, which uh, traveling anywhere can be difficult sometimes, right? To get an open, honest perspective on somebody's background isn't always easy to do. So when they have this prepared for you and you can just step into it, it makes it so much easier. In terms of archaeological stuff, in the north near Bishkek, there's one place called Burana, B-U-R-A-N-A, that is the remains of a minaret of the city of Balasagun, which was from the Karakhanid Khanate. 
it's cool, but it's largely rebuilt during Soviet times because it really was in quite bad shape and, and was going to fall apart if they didn't. Uh, more interesting to me is in the south of the country, in the cities of Osh and Uzgin. There are similar era monuments and, and also somewhat reconstructed, but really attractive. And a lot more, say, tangible history there. Because in those areas, there were more settled communities a lot earlier than in the north of Kyrgyzstan, where the uh, communities remained mostly nomadic, basically until the Soviet period. So you can see a little bit more of it in the south. Most travelers, unfortunately, don't end up making it down there on their first trip because it's you can fly to Osh from Bishkek. That's one of the two major routes. Uh, but once you get to Osh, it's still the same problem of you need a long time to get anywhere by road. And so if you come for two weeks, most people just don't make it a priority, which really is a shame. How about getting into the really big mountains? Because I know there's 7,000 meter plus mountains uh, all to the south. I mean, is that practical in a few weeks to be getting up and into the big, big mountains? The most popular climb for big, big mountains would be Peak Linen, which is 7,000 and something, I don't remember offhand. And most people do that in three to four weeks, from Osh to the mountain, to the top of the mountain, and back to Osh. That one actually is quite easy to get to. It's You need to take a ride from Osh to Saritash, basically. And then from there, you either need to hire a taxi or just walk like... 20 kilometers something across the valley to get down to the base camp. The other highest mountains are on the Inalchek Glacier in the southeast of the country. And they actually form the border. One of them, Peak Pobeda, forms the border between Kyrgyzstan and China. One of them, Peak Kantengri, forms the border between Kyrgyzstan, China, and Kazakhstan. To get to there, I mean, you got to hire a car, basically. You might, I just wrote about this actually, interestingly, so I was looking at it. You might be able to find a local who's going that way who can act as a share taxi. But the village in Ilchek has like 25, 35 families, right? And so the chance that you're going to stumble across one of the locals is quite small. And once you get to the village, you've got about another 60 kilometers of driving to get to the start of the hike and then another nine or 10 days of hiking to get to the base camp. And so that one's yeah considerably more difficult. But man, the payoff is incredible when you get down there. It's an amazing region of the country. Hey, uh, I read... I think on Wikipedia that something that they do in Kyrgyzstan is falconry. Have you ever tried your hand at falconry? <laughs> I have not tried it, but I've seen it a lot of times. Uh, I have tried my hand at standing with an eagle, posing with an eagle many times, but actually training a bird how to do anything? No. Uh, it's something that takes years, man. They catch these, they, they take these birds often from nests when they're born. They raise them themselves. Once they reach adulthood, they start to actually hunt with them. And the bird lives with them until it's uh, 15 or something years old, until it's well into adulthood, and then it's released back into the wild. So when you commit to doing this with one of these birds, you're really committing to doing something for a couple of decades. Uh, and I am not totally convinced that that's something I would want to commit to right now. Well, I actually had a question because it's interesting that they have non-contiguous borders and that there's enclaves <laughs> in different countries in spite of each other. Have you been yeah. to the... Have you been to the, it's called Barak. There's a, a yeah. town apparently with 627 people that's surrounded by Uzbekistan. Have you ever had a chance to travel to that little enclave? I have not, man. That whole oblast is the only one that I've not been to, Botkin. That area traditionally has a fair bit of like border clashes and of residents between the two sides fighting over water rights or pasturage rights or stuff. So it's not a place that I would recommend most travelers to go, right? There is some really epic climbing down there uh, in the, oh, I don't remember the name offhand of the mountain. Um, but there's a, a, say, climbing festival that happens every year in the mountains down there. And that's basically the only travelers that I know that go down there. Is the Pamir Highway a doable area or do you have to be sure that there's no conflict at that time when you're there? 
this region that the enclaves are in is Batkin Oblast, and then the Pamir Highway starts from Osh Oblast, so it's a different part of the country. Uh, but the border for Tajikistan now, as far as I know, is still closed for anybody. There was some fighting, and I won't go into the details of it, but first they closed the border, and then even Kyr first a plane of Tajiks tried to fly into Kyrgyzstan, and Kyrgyzstan sent them back, and then some Kyrgyz tried to fly into Tajikistan, and Tajikistan sent them back, and as far as I know, the border is still closed to everybody on the land borders, and they've restricted each other's citizens from flying in, no matter what the border is. How about the Pamir Highway? Is there, like, how long of the section? Because it, it runs through at least three different countries, right? But in Kyrgyzstan, how long is that route, and is that a nice ride? It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. Uh, so typically, people talk about it as Osh Kyrgyzstan to either Korag or Dushanbe Tajikistan, depending on how far you want to make how it. How far? How far is that? Uh, the Kyrgyz section is really qu a, quite a small bit of it compared to the rest. Mm. Especially like people do it for the remoteness, and once you get down to like Saritash area in Kyrgyzstan, it's not remote anymore, right? Like it's for Kyrgyzstan, it's not remote compared to the rest of the world. Yes, it still is. But especially that bit between Saritash and Korog is really the, just the key bit of it. It really is still the old Soviet road that was built as the Pamirsky Tract. It's, it's just wild. There's, I mean, on the Tajik side especially, you get up to passes that are 4,000-something meters, and like there's literally not a tree, no matter what you look, in any direction. There's not a, a plant, almost, it seems like, because it's just so high that nothing can survive up there. And yet there are villages up there. Google Maps tells me that from Osh to Korog is 725 kilometers. Now, I know in the West, we get all the bad news of a country. And when I've read the travel news, I know there's been a bit of problems. But is is it a safe country to be going around as a Western traveler? Yeah, it really is. I mean, in Bishkek, like in any capital city in the world, if you go out late and get wasted and are stumbling home from a club, you might get mugged, right? Something might happen. Most travelers that I speak to never have any problem. There's one bazaar in the city where sometimes tourists get approached by fake police looking for a bribe, but that's the only really common complaint that, that I hear from travelers. Personally, you know, I went out to a club one night and really had a little bit too much to drink and had trouble on the way home. That's the only problems that I've ever had here. Uh, it, it's something that if you're respectful to people and you treat the country and the culture with respect, mostly you get just respect back. And and so I really like, I think it's one of the things that scares people the most from coming because it just seems like the wild west as far as most, most visitors, potential visitors are concerned. But once you get here, I mean, really probably the most dangerous thing actually is just being on the road in a vehicle because the drivers are not amazing and the roads are also not always amazing. Steven, sometimes it's hard to keep up and I'm like, shit, what, you know, like, cause I don't know the country, the, the, the areas of the country that well. Go to the show notes, uh, talktravelasia.com. We'll have a link to a Google map there that can help you understand some of uh, what Steven's talking about. Because again, it looks like spectacularly beautiful countryside. It's really green. Uh, as we mentioned in the introduction, it's it's called the, the Switzerland of, of Central Asia. Yeah. So it seems like a pretty awesome place to, to explore and to live for you. So, uh, you know, what are you involved in currently there in, in Bishkek? Well, so as you might imagine, there hasn't been a lot of work for guidebook writers recently. Uh, and so I have in, say, for the last five years, have done a little bit of tourism development with international organizations and recently have just leaned way harder into that. Primarily over the winter, I did some work with a Swiss organization called Helvetas that was working in Caracol and the surrounding areas to promote winter tourism there, which was a lot of fun because tourism and sustainable tourism, these are things that I do. But winter tourism, I'm from Louisiana, right? I didn't grow up skiing. I didn't grow up with winter at all, period. Uh, and so it's been a little bit fun to explore that. And frankly, to go like really go snowshoeing in earnest for the first time and really go cross-country skiing in earnest for the first time. How's the skiing? 
they have good skiing winter sports infrastructure? Yeah, man. Actually, so there's nearby to Bishkek, there's probably seven functional ski bases within like an hour and a half, two hours. But the best one that people really should go to if they have the time is in Karakol. Again, I don't really know enough about skiing to call it international quality and know for sure that it is, but it's got lifts, it's got a hotel on site, it's got uh, restaurants and bars and like everything you need basically for a ski vacation all on one mountain outside of Karakol. Uh, and it's quite popular. Again, like there are really good ski bases in Kazakhstan too, but a lot of Kazakhs come to Karakol to go skiing because they like it better. Uzbekistan has a brand new ski resort called Emirsoy, and yet Uzbeks also come to Kyrgyzstan to go skiing. Uh, so based on what skiers think, it seems to be quite popular and good. For bases, there's those options, but man, for free ride, there's like all the options in the world. Uh, there are a couple of yurt camps or villages in sort of the Karakol area where you hike into the yurt or you drive into the village and then from there you go free riding every day. Uh, some of the villages have cat skiing where they basically drive you up the mountain and you ski back down. But also, also, I've never done it, of course, because I don't know how to ski and I would die, but they have heli skiing. Uh, to where you like Ooh. you 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 stay in a guest house. They pick you up in the morning in the helicopter, drop you off on top of a mountain, and then you ski back down. They pick you up and drop you off, and you go two or three times in one day, and then you go back to the guest house for the night. And frankly, like I would just ride in the helicopter and take pictures and be satisfied, you know. But for skiers, people talk about it like it's this unbelievable, best in the world, like really amazing experience. You could go anywhere in the world, and you've been there for quite a while. After all this time, what is it you still love about the place that keeps you there? Well, I'm married now, so that's part of it, obviously. No, like even before that, man, it's just I decided I wanted to be here, right? Like obviously for work, I end up traveling a lot of the year in, in most years. And there was just this time one time I came back from a trip. I don't remember if it was a guidebook trip or a tour leading trip or what, but I landed in Bishkek and it was really just this feeling of like, oh, it's nice to be home. And it kind of surprised me at the time because I didn't think of myself as living here at that point, right? I was just using it as a base between trips. But you land at the airport and you drive out of the airport. It's like a 30, 45 minute drive to the city. And after about 10 minutes, you take this sharp turn and the mountains come into view. Like I remember distinctly, it was like spring or fall, something. It wasn't winter, but there was still snow on the mountains a little bit. And just like these high peaks covered in snow and these tree-lined alleys that you're driving down with fields on either side. Like I just had this moment of thinking, my God, I love it here. And it really does feel like home now. And since then, that's never changed, right? I mean, again, when I have free time, there's no better place for me in the world to just get in the car and drive an hour or six hours and be in remote mountains and be hiking and be camping and, and taking pictures. I mean, all the things that I really want to be doing in my free time. You know, I, I genuinely don't know to tell you where else I could live or would live that it would be as easy and as accessible and yet still so wild all the time. Stephen, if listeners want to know more about what you're up to or what you have planned next, uh, why don't you go ahead and share how people can learn more? Uh, well, so these days I'm most active on Instagram at S-L-I-O-Y, uh, mostly just publishing pictures of cool stuff I did recently in Kyrgyzstan or cool stuff that I'm just getting back from in Kyrgyzstan because obviously most of my time is here now. But I also got back onto a little pet project that I had started years ago and then dropped because I just never found the time to do it of hiking trails across Asia. And I've really, I think in the past two months, I've published 35 posts or something just trying to get a bunch up. And that is called asiahikes.com, but there's a dash in the middle because I'm dumb and I chose a bad URL. So asia-hikes.com. Like it's, some of it is work now, some of it is just still a passion project, but I've really enjoyed going back and reliving some of these hikes that I've done in really beautiful places all across Asia and getting a chance to see those pictures and think about those again. Awesome. Well, you obviously have informed us on an area we know very little about. I almost went through that part of the world with my dad a couple of years ago, but it's really high on my list. 
really thank you so much, Stephen, for sharing with us and giving us your time. And it's always a pleasure to talk about all of Central Asia, especially Kyrgyzstan. Uh, if you do decide to come, please reach back out and let me know. And I'm happy to help you plan the, the coolest trip you can have. Yeah, it's tempting. Uh, so, yeah. And we'd like to have you back on the show, maybe to talk about uh, some other countries in the region, if you're interested. For sure. So, for uh, sure. Thanks for coming on. No problem. It's great that we're expanding into other parts of Asia. And we were so fortunate enough to have someone who lives in Kyrgyzstan and could share some insight on uh, a very different part of the region. Yeah, real excited. A bit of a black hole. I've read about the country a bit. I did some research on Central Asia. As I mentioned, my dad and I were looking at going to that region, but it is so big. And I knew it had a lot of great nature, but he's really gotten me even more excited about that. It seems you don't have to go very far at all and you can be in any kind of nature you want from 7,000 meter peaks to just simple trekking to lakes. Um, so I would love to go there and, you know, bike a bit, motorbike a bit, do some trekking. And I was a bit surprised by how safe it sounds. And I mean, I didn't think it was going to be super dangerous, but I sort of just thought that if you got remote, it would be a bit more dangerous, but it didn't sound to be that way. No, it's quite interesting, you know, and I, I was reminded of uh, John and Kathleen who did our skiing in Iran episode. And I wonder if they've ever skied in Kyrgyzstan or Kazakhstan or Tajikistan, just because like, you know, again, looking at Google Maps, this is like uh, the, the mountain range across the country is kind of like the the northernmost fold of the Himalayas. It's like where the land buckled behind the Himalayas to form like this other range. There's some pretty big peaks. So I bet the heli skiing is amazing. I, I you know, I'd be interested in learning more about that. Yeah, the heli skiing was a bit of a surprise. And I was actually very surprised when he said cat skiing, because I mean, that's a pretty unique big piece of equipment, uh, very unique that they got to bring in somewhere. So, I mean, I haven't skied much in the last few years, but gosh, that'd be pretty awesome to go there. But I mean, that country is just bordered by so many interesting, far fung places. And uh, yeah, I'm sold, man. Like, I'd love to have six months of my life and just go to Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan and all over the place. Sounded really fantastic. Remember, we're going to have a Google map to put a bit more context on where all these places are that Stephen was chatting about. We have links on the show notes to his sites, and uh, you can get linked up to his Instagram, his Twitter, his uh, hiking in Asia and so forth. So make sure you check that out. Thanks very much to patrons who sponsor the show and help us keep this going. If you're interested in throwing a little bit of financial love, we do pay for this out of our own pockets. Go to patreon.com, search Talk Travel Asia. And sponsors for as little as a buck or two a month upwards. You get special content every other week between these episodes. Trevor, why don't you wrap this thing up? Thanks, Scott. Thanks for joining me again for another episode of our podcast. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, we'll be back with another show in two weeks. Aloha.